Amen. We are thankful as we approach God this morning. Um, and we get to continue in this series talking about our neighbors. Uh, Leviticus 24. This will be the, the last part of our uh, looking at, at what the Bible says about our neighbors according to the Old Testament law before we move into maybe some of the more familiar passages you're expecting regarding uh, what things that Jesus said. But all this Jesus draws from. So that's where we're, we've begun. And I want to talk to you a moment about some of my neighbors growing up. I know when you especially live in an area for a long time, in a, in a community, uh, the smaller it is, the more you get to know your neighbors. And sometimes that's helpful, and sometimes that's a hindrance in trying to be the neighbor uh, that, that Scripture kind of lays out for God's people that, and tells them that they're supposed to be. Uh, I lived on a dead-end road, and, and one of my neighbors lived at the very end uh, this family was called the Bossiers, B-O-S-S-I-E-R-S. And as you might expect, if you know anything about uh, parishes in Louisiana, uh, they were from Louisiana. Uh, Bossier City is in Louisiana, and that was their name. And, and they were uh, they were Louisiana. They were Cajuns. Uh, I'll just say it that way. Uh, they had a little boy. His name was Justin, and Justin would come over barefooted and raggedy cut-off shorts and dirty t-shirts and we'd play outside and uh, they didn't live very far from us just down the road and we played outside until his mama came on the, one on the front porch and she'd say Justin Justin Bozier get get back home it's time for supper and he wouldn't even say bye he'd just take off running and that was the end of Justin for that day until he just popped up again the next day the Bozier's were funny they, they were an interesting family I remember uh, Justin's dad his name was Terry and, and he had uh, what, they, what they referred to in their house as a higher piece. Um, not a wig, a higher piece. And I would be over at, at their house some days and I would hear, I would hear Terry scream across the room to, to Sissy. As, I don't even know her real name, but he called her Sissy and that was just what everybody called her Sissy. Sissy, have you seen my higher piece? And she'd say from across the house, well, no, Terry, last time I wore it, I put it where it's supposed to go. That was the Bozers. <clears throat> they were kind of quirky, but they were. Justin was my friend. And then next to the Bozers was Mr. Broussard. And Mr. Broussard had lived there for, I think, longer than anyone in our, in our little, little dead-end road neighborhood. And Mr. Broussard had the, the plot of land that his house was on, but he also had the plot of land right next to it that you could have put a house on, but, but he never did. He just had a, a big garden in the middle of it. And in Mr. Broussard's garden part, there were two places where you could, could enter that plot, you know, because they, they were, could be driveways if he would have had a, had a home there. Uh, but you could enter one and you'd go all the way around his garden and, and leave the other. And you just made this long little trek. And so uh, the neighborhood kids would ride our bikes back and forth on, on the gravel road. Uh, but sometimes, especially in the summer, we'd kind of want a, a cooler area. There were trees along in that little area. And so... Uh, we would take a little shortcut. We'd go on one side and we'd go all the way around his garden and leave. And that just became part of our path. And, you know, growing up in, in, in a small little area, whether, whether this is good or bad, right or wrong, you'd, kids just kind of feel like they have the run of the area. And, and Mr. Broussard was okay with that. You know, there was never, as far as I'm concerned, any spoken word about that with our parents. But he'd wave at us and we'd wave back and we'd drive through. And that was Mr. Broussard. And he was a nice, he was a nice man. And then Mr. Broussard sold his house 
moved in with family, and he sold his house to Mr. Glenn. Well, Mr. Glenn wasn't a gardener. Mr. Glenn put a big shop in the middle of that plot of land where Mr. Broussard's garden was. And I guess Mr. Glenn did not quite trust kids or didn't like kids or just didn't want anyone getting hurt on his land because the next thing you know, there were two big roadblocks on those places where you could enter that plot of land. And I'm not going to tell you what the kids said about Mr. Glenn behind his back, but we didn't like him. How, how could he put roadblock? This was, this was our, you know, I know he bought it. It was his, I guess, but, you know, it was also ours. We kind of had the run of it. That's the way it was. You don't just move in and, and tell us we can't ride on our little area anymore. That's what he did. And, and I never really got to know Mr. Glenn, but I just knew I didn't like him because he blocked off his driveways and wouldn't let us ride our bikes on his piece of property. Ironically, now that I'm older, I kind of empathize with Mr. Glenn, and I kind of get it. Uh, that's, that's how it is in small towns. You know your neighbors, and, and to various degrees, they kind of get some reputations, don't they? And, and sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's bad because, you know, you get to know someone, and, and you've known them for a while, you've known them 20 years, and you think, oh, that's just so-and-so. That's how they've been as long as I've known them, so there's really not much I can do for them or be for them. That's, they're just kind of crazy. Last week, we looked at some laws in Leviticus, though, that dealt with the way God's people treated one another. And it even connected the way that God's people treat one another and those outside of them, that are also their neighbors, to, to the way that they treat God and the way that they reflect God and, and the relationship that they have with God. And, and it connected those things. You couldn't separate them in those laws. And so what happens when some of those laws that we looked at regarding the way people treat one another and the way people are to recognize God, what happens when they're broken? That's what we're going to look at in Leviticus chapter 24, beginning in verse 10. <clears throat> now the son of an Israelite mother, an Egyptian father, went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemit, the daughter of Dibri the Danite. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to, Mo to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreign or native-born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their, their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Now that's the kind of Old Testament justice we're used to reading in the book of Leviticus, isn't it? And, and I admit of all the passages we could pick to talk about the way we're supposed to treat our neighbors, this one seems like an unlikely candidate. But I want to point out something, and we're going to get into this and go a little deeper. But the first thing I want to point out is that this penalty that is grave for... for for harming, your, for, for blaspheming God, first of all, it's also the same penalty God prescribes for, for taking someone's life. 
And so even though it's, it's, it's presented in negative terms, we see that God is, is equating human life with honoring and respecting Him. He's saying though the penalty for that is, is the same. So in one vein, this passage can be understood about what happens to someone that blasphemes God. But God kind of takes it. And he also says, well, this is what happens when you blaspheme my name. But, but he makes it about something else. He makes it about the worth of your name. And so when we recognize our neighbor's worth, and we look at this passage, we see that the first thing that jumps out is that you recognize, you consider your neighbor's worth before God. If, if you're going to value who they are and recognize who they are, you, you have to consider who they are before God. And, and that might, it could, that could vary. It could be, well, they know God or they don't. But, but the end result is, is that, well, God values them regardless of where they're at. I was once at this outdoor event in Waco uh, waiting to see Santa Claus. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't standing in line waiting to see Santa Claus. I was standing in line with my kids who were waiting to see Santa Claus. And uh, this was one of those downtown kind of carnival type atmospheres. And sure enough, as we're waiting in line, my kids have to go to the bathroom. And so I turned to Michelle and I said, I volunteer as tribute. I don't know if you get that reference or not. Uh, I volunteered to do that because anytime you go to the bathroom in one of those places, it's going to be a porta potty. And so you know what you're getting yourself into. It's not a great thing. And, uh, you know, I think, well, I could probably handle that a little better than Michelle could. And so we walk to the, to the row of porta-potties. And I'm just dreading what we're going to find. And, well, I mean, you're not going to find anything good. But, but at least I spot this one, you know, double-sized family porta-potty. You know, if you've got to go in a porta-potty, especially with two kids, you want it, it's a big one. And I thought... Well, that's it. That's the king of porta potties. And so there was nobody around it. And I thought, well, that's good. The big crowd that was there, no one was there. We ran over to it, and I grabbed the handle, and oh, nothing happened. And then I grabbed it, I tried to jangle, then I heard, hey, someone's in here. And I, oh, oh. See, what had happened is I spied this king size porta potty from a distance, thought I'd won the porta potty lottery. And I ran over to it without even checking, you know, the little status that says occupied or vacant. I didn't even think to look at that. And sure enough, when I looked down, it said occupied. I wanted to see a vacant porta potty. I saw what I wanted to see. And sometimes when we look at our neighbors, we see what we're conditioned to see, what we want to see, the way that they act might lead us to think we should see. In verse 10, we're told that the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites and they got in a fight. And I probably don't have to tell you that when people looked at, at the half-Egyptian boy, it didn't take much for them to see someone who was already guilty before, before they really even knew anything else. They saw this. I mean, we don't have to tell I don't have to remind you who the Egyptians are, right? They're the people that oppressed Israel for 40 years. They, they had them as slaves. The, the Pharaoh killed uh, the, the, or had, or ordered to have the, the firstborn sons killed. This, this was the people that God showed his displeasure against by sending the plagues. This was the people that God said when, when, when all the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, he sent the, 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 each side of the Red Sea crashing onto the army that was pursuing them. I mean, God showed what he thought about them. If we don't know anything about this guy, this Egyptian, when the Israelites look at him, we know that, that they probably look at him and see someone that's guilty. And so fighting and being half Egyptian isn't enough. We read in verse 11 that he blasphemes the name 
the name, it says in that verse, with a curse. The name that Moses heard. The, the name that God gave to Moses to say, this is who I am and this is who I'm supposed to be. And This became such a holy thing to Israel that they did not even utter God's name out loud, much less blaspheme it. And say something bad about it. And so this was a really big deal. And we can guess that maybe this happened because the guy had an Egyptian father. He had someone that wasn't you know, brought up in the ways of, of God's people. Didn't honor and respect it quite the same. We don't know if that's the reason why, but we kind of guess that. You know, when, when, when there's a family and, and you know their parents and the kid gets in trouble. I know you've done this, so don't pretend like you haven't. And you turn to your spouse and you say, well, I'm not surprised judging who their parents are. Right? We know their family. We kind of know their background. I mean, this was that kid. You know, it probably wasn't a surprise for, for those that would do this. I mean, we know who his dad is. But so what do people do? They act on impulse. They jump to conclusions. I mean, I know there's a, there's a, a rough part. and We're going to get to that. But, but I think it's important to stop and say, at verse 12... They waited. They, they, they said, we're going to wait until the will of the Lord is clear about what we need to do. How many times do we stop and consider who someone is to God based on something dumb that they did or just some impression that we have or some stereotype that we've gotten from them over the years? And I think about this It's especially important for, for those of you, whether you're a teacher or you work in the school. Because you're around the kids and you know the kids. and I, I, know, I know it's easy from a, from a pastor that's not in the trenches with you. But being able to stop and consider and say, who is this person to God? May make the difference in giving you just a little, little bit more of an ounce of patience. Because you may not have, whether you're a teacher or whatever you are, you may not have a big need for a certain person. But to God, it's a different story. And so sometimes due to what someone's done to us or due to maybe even what they've accomplished, it's easy to see them how we want to see them. And if that's all that mattered, we wouldn't have these laws in the Old Testament that said this is how you're to treat one another. This is who neighbors are supposed to be to you. And so we recognize our neighbor's worth by considering who they are to God. And then, of course, we don't stop there. We have to say this is who the person is to God. And we compare that to what we know about God. We consider who the person is based on the truth that we know about God. And the overall truth about God in the book of Leviticus is that God is holy. That's, that's not all that He is, right? We know from the rest of the Bible that God is love and, and we're supposed to balance those two, but, but the message in Leviticus is that God is holy. And so some read the book of Leviticus and, and they see what happens to someone that blasphemes God's holy name and they say, well, how is that fair? And, and it's difficult to answer how that's fair, but but, but the best sort of illustration I read was from, believe it or not, a, a middle school pastor. And he gives, this, uh, he gives this scenario. He says, suppose someone in middle school punches a teacher. Excuse me. Suppose someone in middle school first just gets in a fight. What's going to happen? Well, they're probably going to go to ISS or detention or whatever you call it. Well, then suppose next they, they punch that teacher that's in detention or, or ISS. And probably the next step is some sort of suspension. And they're going to be removed from school. And so they're sent home. And just suppose this student is, is walking home. And, and they, they see a police officer. And they punch the police officer. Well, the next step is jail, isn't it? They're going to end up in jail. 
And then suppose many years later, this same person is waiting as the president of the United States is, is leaving a building and he sees him walking and he fights his way to the front of the crowd and he, he tries to assault the president. Well, he's likely going to get shot by, by the Secret Service, isn't he? It's the same crime. It's the same crime, but, but the one in whom it is, it's committed against dictates what's, what happens. And I know that that little illustration doesn't make what happens in 13 Verses 13 to 16 sound any prettier. The Lord himself is credited with commanding Moses to take the boy that's blasphemed the name of the Lord outside the camp and for the whole assembly to stone him. And so that's a difficult passage to, rec- to, to reconcile. So I'm going I'm to sit down and I've invited EJ to come up and he's going to explain uh, that difficult passage to us. No? Okay, we didn't talk about that. Uh, he did just take scriptures, one with Dr. Nonature at seminary, so I thought maybe he would want to come explain it to us. No, because it's, it's difficult. You don't really reconcile it. it. It's not something to reconcile. I'd like to tell you when I look at that and say, well, God didn't really say that. Moses, what, what, I mean, uh, excuse me. <clears throat> the, the person that wrote that was not really... Uh, it wasn't really true. Moses mis- misunderstood God. He didn't really tell him to do that. But the problem is when I look at the passage, I don't see that in there, and I, and I can't say that. I do think it's important to note that this was for a certain time, and, and, and when we look at it, it's not right to take that and say, well, this is exactly how God wants us to operate today. But what I think is important is not necessarily what God tells the people to do as much as what He is communicating about Himself to the people when He tells them to do it. Because until this point, God has not given any consequences for blasphemy. He said, don't do it in the book of Exodus. He said, it's bad. But then after this moment, after it's committed, he takes this and he turns it into a teaching moment in verses 15 and 16 and says, if anyone curses God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. And I don't think that's a command that God took joy in, but I think it's a command indicated to communicate truth about who he is. When anyone compares their status to God, I mean, humility should be, we should be humbled by it. We live in a time where it is, it's very easy to look at our relationship with God as being just this individual thing between me and God and nobody else. And uh, to see ourselves as just this individualistic thing. The thing is, when we come together and we worship God, we're, we're saying it isn't just me. It's, it's everybody else in this room, and we do this together, and, and there's, there's a connectedness to it. That's what being a neighbor is all about. You know, one of the ways that we worship at Eastwood is we try and not just sing hymns and not just sing choruses and not just sing new songs. We try and do a mix, and believe it or not, that's not just because Terry's trying to make everybody happy. I heard, heard a joke. I said, if you, have a traditional, heard if you have a traditional service, all the old people are happy. If you have a contemporary service, all the young people are happy. If you have a blended service, no one is happy. I don't know if that's true or not. But, but the point behind that is not to make people happy. As much as it is to try as best we can to help people worship, not only understanding about God, and not only singing something to God, but both. This is a generalization, but maybe you've noticed that, that a lot of the hymns communicate truth about God. Remember the old hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty? At the end of it, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. 
It communicates something about God. And then a lot of the newer songs, you think about some of the choruses that we sing. We sing, shout to the Lord, my Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. Those are to God. And you need both of those things when, when you recognize who God is and you're, you're worshiping to him. It's, it's both of those things that create this balance that says, I'm, I'm giving my worship to God, but I'm also recognizing who he is. Because you can't recognize who God is apart apart from being aware of what that means about your neighbor. So we consider our neighbor's status before God. We compare it to what we know about God. And ultimately, that should lead us to affirm who they are, whether they're good or bad, Mr. Glenn or, or the Bozers, whoever they are, to affirm their life before God, because God cares about life. Do you ever wonder why we do baby dedications at church? It's not just so we can have a time where we can say, oh, that baby's really cute. That's not really the point. I remember in college, a church Michelle and I attended, the pastor, we would, he would do baby dedications, and he would hold that baby up from the pulpit. And it always reminded me of the Lion King, because he would hold it up like that, you know. And I kept waiting for the circle of life to start playing, and, you know, and, and, and I wanted to be one of the elephants that would, Ooh. I never did. Michelle would slap me. But... That's what it always reminded me of. But the point was not to make a big deal. I mean, the point was, was for him to hold the baby up, for the whole congregation to see it, and, and to affirm it as, as a life, as a life that God cared about. When we went to another church, I thought probably did it a little bit better, and staff members would actually carry the child. It was, it was a big, bigger church. They would carry it throughout the aisles of the church and let people look at it, and, and then they'd pray for it together. It was their way of affirming that life. Before God. Verses 17 through 20 make up that infamous eye for an eye passage. And, and it may not seem like it at first glance, but this is God saying that I care about people's lives. Because this is the penalty for, for, for messing with people's lives. Maybe you read that over, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And you think, man, that's, that's a tough passage to think about, you know, how we're supposed to beat our neighbors because... I mean, we don't even have those kind of laws. We don't go by that necessarily today in our laws. And some of you might read it and think, well, I wish we did go by those laws today. Maybe, maybe things would be a lot better. Well, that's not the point. I'm not here to debate that. The point is, when, when we look at what God says about how we're supposed to act with one another and what the penalty is for not doing that, verse 17, I think most readily sums it up. He says, if anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. Why? Because the life of that person is important to God. It is so important to God that he says it's the same penalty as if you blaspheme my name. That's how much life is important to God. Now this time, that, that little illustration about the middle school boy and punching the different people, it doesn't hold true, does it? Because it would be ridiculous to think that, you know, punching the president... And, and getting a fight in middle school would warrant the same, warrant the same punishment. But effectively, that's what God is saying. These, these, the life of people is so important that I put it on par with, with recognizing my holiness. God is saying that affirming people, specifically your neighbors, is just as important as recognizing his holiness. And, and it almost, when he gives these laws, it's almost anticipating that question that would be asked Many, 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 many years later of Jesus by that expert in the law, someone that would have known these laws, who is my neighbor? 
Well, well, before even Jesus asked that question, the answer is in verse 22. You're to have the same law for the alien and the native born. I'm the Lord your God. The life of all people is just as important as God's holiness. And ultimately, we know as Christians, we, we don't need these laws to go by because we know that God showed us that through Christ, don't we? That's the ultimate act that shows what is important to God. But here's the reason I think we fail sometimes to, to know, knowing what we know about Jesus and knowing the gospel to let that impact the way we see our neighbors. And it's because when we look at the cross, often we see it as a very individualistic act. Have you ever had someone say to you, maybe I read this in a book I was reading, Emily even. You take John 3.16 and, and you put your name where the word world is. For God so loved instead of world, Matt. God so loved Ed, for God so loved Rod, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is a, a true enough statement. But, but if that's all you get, what you take out and what you put in is not equal. It's, it's an, it makes an incomplete statement to say God loves Matt. Because it's not much of a leap to say, well, God just loves Matt. That's not what we're saying, but when you remove the world, that's what you're saying. And theologians call this, when you hold that, that whole world view of God loving the whole world, that's a corporate view of salvation. That God, that, that Jesus died for every person, regardless of their color, their age, their gender, their race, their citizenship, their religion, their political affiliation. You fill it in. That Jesus died for every one of those. And, and, and they, they mean something to God. And of course, the problem is for us, neighbors are weird, aren't they? They're quirky. We get to know them. And, and the smaller the town, the smaller the neighborhood, the more outrageous they can be. But if God says that affirming their life is just as important as recognizing his holiness, then who am I to look at, at the Bozers from Backwoods, Louisiana, or, or Mr. Glenn, who didn't want to let us ride our bikes on his property and, and see them as any less or treat them as any less? Maybe when I was telling you about my neighbors, you thought about a person or a neighbor or, or, or someone that you've just known for years. And God says that person is, is valuable. That person is important. Maybe when you think about your story and how you became a Christian or how you started coming to church. The truth is, most of you that, that come to church, you come because a neighbor of some sort, whether that was a parent or a relative or, or a friend, looked at you and they said, in spite of your weirdness, in spite of your quirkiness, we want to bring you to this, this eclectic group that we call the church. And they included you. And so when you recognize your neighbor's worth, it means, it means seeing the same thing in them that that person saw in you. As being someone that Jesus thought he should die for. Just ask God today to help you to see all of your neighbors in the way that Jesus sees you. Pray with me. God, we thank you for how much you care about the world. And God, we need to be reminded sometimes that that includes all of us, not just our family, not just the neighbors that we like, and not just the people that we relate to the most. And God, we need, we need to be reminded of, of, of a salvation that is for all. That, that we have an ability to, to share with others. 
And Lord, we pray that that would help us and guide us in, in the way that we treat our neighbors and make the difference from us writing them off and seeing you in them, seeing how much you value them. Lord, we pray you give us your eyes so we can see the world as you do. And Lord, help us, God, as we, as we apply this difficult passage to our life to be people that care about you and who you are and what that means about us and our neighbors. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God is